0: To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash FilmDaily.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, June 4th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler the Slash Film Editor-in-Chief, Peter Saretta. And joining me on today's podcast is slash home managing editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer Squatrend Bowie. Hey everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So we have the whole team back together for the first time in over a week. Um I've been away at uh Disneyland for a few days at Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Um, we talked about that on yesterday's podcast, but this is just my way of saying I have not been doing much outside of the planet of Batuu uh, for the last week. So you're not going to hear a lot from me on this podcast. But please, if you uh, want to see some of my adventures in Galaxy's Edge, uh, you can head over to uh, my new YouTube channel. I will link that in the show notes. Uh, but, Chris, what, what have you been up to? You've been traveling as well.
2: Uh, yes, I went to New Orleans for the uh, Overlook Film Festival, which is a horror-centric uh, film festival. And it, it was a lot of fun. Um, the movies weren't so great. Uh, out of all the films I saw, I probably only think, like, two were, were what I would call good. But the experience was was good. I, I had never been there before. Um uh, it was ungodly humid, and I did not like that part. I feel like if I ever go back, I'll go back like in the fall or even the winter because that that's probably more bearable because it, it's it's so humid there that you're you become uh, drenched in sweat almost immediately. but it's a it's a interesting place. It's an interesting city. It's very um, uh, it blends all these cultures. It's very obsessed with. Uh, death and voodoo and ghosts and that's all stuff I really like. So I, uh, I had a good time. Um, I went on a ghost tour that was sponsored by the festival, which was cool. They took us around to various uh, quote unquote haunted places. One of which was actually owned by Nicolas Cage for a while because he used to live in New Orleans. And he actually has a grave in New Orleans too that he will be buried in someday. There's a there's a pyramid marking his his burial place crazy um yeah you
3: know, you know chris i've heard about the nichols cage house because famously he bought it because it was haunted it would host parties there and eat there but never spend the night there he would always go spend the night in a hotel because he didn't want to spend the night in the haunted house
2: right but and it's- he also sorry Gad.
3: i was want to say it's my favorite Nicolas- the favorite nichols cage story it humanizes him in a very specific way for me
2: <laughs> and uh they also told us on the ghost tour that he blamed um his irs troubles on the fact that he bought the haunted house like he he thinks he's cursed now because <laughs> he bought the house and that's why he got in trouble with the irs but it's probably <laughs> it's probably more likely it's because he didn't pay his taxes but he blames ghosts yeah um i mean i'm
1: with you on the whole uh humidity problem in new orleans during the summer i remember going there for a set visit for uh abraham lincoln vampire hunter and maze runner a few years ago and it, that was like in the bayou it was like even worse chris because you're like in the middle of nowhere and there's bo- insects you've never seen that look like they're from like avatar trying to like <laughs> eat you and you're like covered and drenched in sweat
2: yeah but at the, you know uh, beyond that it's, it's it's a it's a fun place because they have, um, they allow open containers on the street. So, what people do is because there's basically a bar everywhere on every corner. So, people go into bars, they buy uh, large amounts of alcohol, and then they just stumble out into the streets with that alcohol because they can legally. No one will stop them. And as a result, the entire city is drunk, everyone from morning to night. I would get up. Leave my hotel to go somewhere, and there would be people just staggering around the streets like zombies at like 9 a.m., clearly intoxicated. It was quite a town. I don't know how people live there and don't die constantly, but I guess they get used to it. Yeah,
3: This is the podcast for this, but uh, (laughs) I made some very poor decisions during my trip to New Orleans (laughs) that climaxed with me ending up so drunk at 3 in the morning that I was in a porn store with my sister Talking about pornography while we were both wasted, and this—that that shouldn't happen. That should never happen to human beings, but it happened.
2: <laughs> it's that's the, it's just the place. I think it just yeah. it lends itself to that uh, debauchery that you just it just inspires you to do very uh, poor things, and you you end up regretting them. But that's that. Yeah, and being on that
1: main street, like if if you can get there in the morning, it's almost like you are in a bar after they turn the lights on. And there's, like, you know, vomit in the street, and there's, you know, some, piss from some homeless person in the corner. It, it, it's 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 very
2: sad. Yeah, place. it's a beautiful yeah, town. Guys
4: are really selling this place. Yeah,
2: it's beautiful. It's a beautiful <laughs> place. Vomit in the streets, blood everywhere. <laughs> it's great. Lots,
3: lots of history, though. Lots of cool things to
2: see yeah. in the day and
3: lots of things to puke on at night.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, both of those things. Okay, Jacob, what have you been up to? Uh
3: I'm also playing the travel. I, I'm not sure if I can talk about what I'm doing. I'll be able to talk about it shortly after it. Uh, but I am going to Walt Disney World for a work trip later this week, from Thursday through Saturday. And this is my first time being there since 2011. Even though I grew up going there every few years with my family, you know, once you graduate from college, stop being you know feasible for everybody to go every few years. So I'm going back and have a very whirlwind trip of just a few days uh, to try to catch up with the parks and see all the new stuff and see all of my favorites and generally try to absorb a, a series of resorts that you honestly really need a week to really properly enjoy in three days. So if you have, if you have any whirlwind theme park advice, you know, you know, feel free to contact me on Twitter or let me know. I've been planning obsessively. I have a, I have a game plan. I'm prepared for it to change. I'm prepared to break my diet and have all the delicious fried churros. Uh, but, if you have advice, if you ever went down to Disney World for a convention and had limited hours and know where to go, I'm open to hear it. I'm open to change my plans if you have the advice. So let me know. And we'll be talking theme parks again next week as I recount what it's like to visit Disney World in 2019 when you're 30 years old instead of 21. Yeah.
1: The only thing I can say is go to Pandora.
3: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Rope drop.
1: Yeah. Are, are you going to go there with like... In character, you're gonna like study up on Avatar and like go go up to the shop goers like I was going up to in uh, Batu and like uh, you know saying all the the famous lines that what is that I see you
3: <laughs> I guess I see you I I don't know yet because I'm going solo and this is the first time I've ever done a theme park trip solo and I've always wanted to and I'm very very excited to be able to pivot as how how I want and be able to do the goofy things that my family never wanted to do and go on the rides that. My family always scoffed at. So you know what? Maybe I will treat Avatar as an in-world experience. We'll see, Peter. I wonder how many people actually do. Probably not many.
1: um, Brad, what have you been up to? You've been traveling too.
5: Uh, Yeah, I'm back in Utah hanging out with my girlfriend for a little bit. Um, So just chilling out here uh, in the mountains. And part of that included going up to the actual Sundance Resort, which even though I've been to Sundance Film Festival nine years now, I've never actually been to the actual Sundance Resort because that is actually further away from where most of the festival takes place. Um, There are some screenings that happen there, but because it's about a half an hour away from where most of the screenings happen, uh, we usually don't head that way. So uh, my girlfriend took me up there this time because they have a ski lift that goes to the mountains uh, even during the summer so that you can go up and just like check out the views uh, of the Wasatch Mountain Range that is around you and it was awesome um i i haven't been up in a mountain range like this i think since i was a kid i went like like up in the rockies with my parents uh when we were in went on a trip to tennessee uh so this was really cool it's um it gets a little scary not that the ski lift is unstable but just because all you're doing is sitting in a chair with your feet dangling uh over the mountains and there's just a bar that's that's in front of you but you don't even have to have the bar in front of you you can just lift it up yourself and sit without it um which i wasn't too keen on because Sometimes I get nervous with heights, um, but it, there were great views. It was uh, really cool to go up there, especially during the summer because the, the, there's some snow on the mountains, but it's not fully covered. Uh, it's a little bit chilly up there, but during the summer, uh, since people aren't skiing, they have a bunch of mountain bikers up there who uh, are riding down the mountains like on these trails, just like speeding through and everything. So it was pretty cool to to get up there and check that out.
1: Very cool. Uh, okay, let's move on to what we've been reading Uh, I've only been reading a little. I've been reading – Disney has produced these – a line of Galaxy's Edge-inspired books. I've only been reading the comic books. There's these Star Wars Galaxy's Edge comic books. But it's funny because they kind of tell these stories within the the world, the planet of Batuu, which they have turned into this theme park land. So, like, in the first comic book, you get to learn how Han Solo and Chewbacca – Captured a baby uh, sarlacc and uh, delivered that to Doc Ondar. So when you are in Doc Ondar's shop in Star Wars Land in Galaxy's Edge, you can actually see that baby sarlacc in in a tank and actually it's moving and stuff as an animatronic uh, a creature. Um, but it, it's it's really cool. I, I like that they are fleshing out this world and they're actually even though you know this is a land that we've never seen before in Star Wars, we're getting stories that are you know around it and giving it some flavor and some history on on the other hand it's it's like everything in Star Wars like why has everybody we've known in the Star Wars universe already been on on Batuu like we know Darth Vader has been there Thrawn's been there and now Han Solo and Chewie have been there like it feels like every other planet on uh you know in the original trilogy it seems like it, everybody has been there but uh I, I well, guess that's it's- What What
5: does a baby Sarlacc look like if it's not inside of, like, a sand dune?
1: It's really cool because the tank that it is in, Brad, I wish you could go when you're here this weekend. But uh, um, the tank that it is in, basically, you get to see a cross section. So you get to see what the Sarlacc looks like underneath the sand. So you get to see its body, like, breathing and stuff underneath. the. It's kind of like... You know, if you got to see, like, the cross section of, like, what a tree looked like underneath the, the, you know, the ground. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, but, anyways, uh, that, that is, that is just nonsense. Because this comic book is the kind of thing where, like, it opens up with one of the characters from the land, like, serving someone, one of the characters, uh, the Ronto Wrap, which is like one of the food that they that they sell in the in, in in this theme park land, so it's it's ridiculous from start to finish. But I'm enjoying it. Uh, Jacob, what have you been reading?
3: Uh, I read a very long article uh, inspired by some recent movie news, and that is American Nightmare: The Ballad of Richard Jewell, written by Marie Brenner and originally published in Vanity Fair in 1998. And I put this on my to read list because. It's been being developed as a film for a long time now, and Clint Eastwood recently signed on to direct it. And five years ago, it was going to star Leonardo DiCaprio and Jonah Hill reuniting after Wolf of Wall Street, although they're no longer attached as actors. And it's the story of Richard Jewell, who was a security guard at the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta. And he spotted a suspiciously placed backpack, cleared the area, and the bombed backpack went off and people were injured, but nobody died Um thanks to uh, him acting quickly, and, and for about 24 hours he was a national hero. They spent the next year being accused of being the person who planted the bomb uh, either to cause the violence or to make himself look like a hero, and a combination of like incredibly foul play and just rotten tactics from the FBI and very lousy reporting from the local newspapers fed into this entire theory that he was the bad guy and literally destroyed his life to the point where he, n- he never recovered from being an accused bomber. And it's a long read. I think It's, a, it's a, in my pocket app, which, where I read most of my articles. says a 90-minute read. And I, it, I was engrossed by it. And in the film version that was being made at one point, uh, Jonah Hill was going to play uh, Jewel. And DiCaprio was going to play his lawyer, uh, who fights hard to you know clear this completely innocent guy's name. And it, would, it sounds like a really inspired casting. I wish that they were still the ones uh, starring in it. But I can't get excited about Clint Eastwood movie these days. But American Nightmare, The Ballad of Richard Jewell, is, it is a terrifying article. And it really makes you wonder just the, the, the fine line between celebrity and hero and terrorist and criminal and where, where all those lines cross and how easy it is for... Uh, powerful institutions completely screw over somebody's life because they didn't double-check something or because they doubled down the wrong hunches. It is a really thrilling read, even 21 years after it was published.
1: Hmm. Okay, let's move on to what we've been watching. Uh, I got to see X-Men Dark Phoenix, but uh, is there an embargo on this? I think there's an embargo. There
4: is both a social media embargo and a review embargo for the same time tonight at 10 p.m., Pacific time
1: yeah HT you also saw this and you also cannot say anything
4: yes but I saw it
3: yeah but your review HT's uh, review will be up tonight on the site at 10 p.m. Pacific time it will yeah
5: okay so by yeah, please to- check it out I, I, by tonight we mean June 4th in case you're listening to this on a different day
1: yes
4: yeah and for those on the East Coast that will be 1 a.m. Eastern time on tomorrow
1: it almost seems like they're burying the review the week of release
4: Yeah, it almost does
1: not to say that 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 doesn't comment on our feelings of this film at all but um, yeah okay uh, let's move on (laughs) Uh, let's talk about Godzilla King of Monsters this is a movie that I missed while I was at Disneyland but uh, three of you have seen it or actually four of you have seen it but uh, Chris already told us his thoughts on that I believe Um, Jacob what did you think
3: uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters is a bad movie, and I regret to say that because I was very excited. And I love uh, Michael Doherty's first two films, Trick or Treat and Krampus. But this movie is a mess on a script level. It is a broken, bad screenplay. The storytelling on the on the page is as bad as any Transformers movie. It's as bad as any blockbuster movie we make fun of. But it is, it is just, you know, doesn't have the Transformers trash atmosphere for us to be distracted by. So it, it it manages to be dumb and uninteresting and just half baked in every possible way, and it really bums me up because there there's some there's some inspired moments and some inspired ideas, and I'm sure HT and Ben will get into it in a second, but like I was like just bored during this. I was like my favorite Godzilla movies. I mean, I guess maybe some context required is the 1954 Godzilla is a horror movie about you know, about the about the you know pain of nuclear warfare and the aftermath of radiation, and then. Uh, Gareth Edwards' is of 2014, which I really like. It's a horror film where Godzilla doesn't even acknowledge human beings. He, it, it's about us being reduced to an animal about by something that is so much bigger than us that we can't even, that it, it can't even comprehend us or acknowledge us. And Shin Godzilla from a few years ago, uh, most recent Japanese live action film, is my favorite Godzilla movie because it is very much a Japanese filmmaker using this this horror icon of radioactive terror to explore the, the, the disaster at Fukushima, to explore Japan's legacy on the world stage. And I kept on waiting for this Godzilla movie to use Godzilla in a way that meant something, in a way that was beyond monster smash things. And there's some half-baked attempts at global warming commentary, some half-baked attempts at like family dynamics. But for all the big, loud noise, it is just big, loud noise. It's just a monster mash on top of being incredibly stupid. And I was incredibly disappointed. Uh, but Ben... You warned me in advance that you did not like this. So I'll let you chime in now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have much to add beyond what you're saying. I really think the biggest failure with this movie is on a script level. And it's, um, you know, it really just it feels like something where because I know Michael Doherty is a is a good storyteller, has the capacity to be a good storyteller. But it just seems like. Something where they were really, you know, trying to hit a release date, and they were forced into a corner, and they just like shot their first draft. You know, it feels like there's the kernels of of good ideas that are in there. And the the one positive thing I'll say about the movie is I think there are some visuals in it that are pretty spectacular. I mean, even, uh, you know, I almost missed them because my eyes were rolling so far back in my head from the dumbass dialogue that a lot of these characters <laughs> were delivering. But I think there are some really like beautiful tableaus and like the colors and um uh yeah, just like the the neons and like the streaked colors of the skies and there's like so many uh, yellows and oranges and like fire colors and blues and um, I think if if the movie has any uh, redeeming qualities, it's that um, that Michael Doherty knows that, that occasionally you need to put the camera so far back from the action and stage it as like a um, almost like a Renaissance tableau or something, where where you can see everything from so far away, and it's like you're um, you're beholding this sort of uh, glorious surreal experience of these otherworldly creatures doing battle on a, such a massive scale. Um, those were the moments, which are few and far between in the movie, where I where I didn't completely regret spending the time to watch it. But HT, what did you think about it?
4: Yeah, um, this movie looks gorgeous and I agree with what you're saying about how Michael Doherty knows how to position his camera and I think the way that he uh, gives this sort of, sort of painterly quality to those big action sequences where you just see you know, Godzilla shooting a big beam at the sky uh, lends to the more mythic qualities that he's trying to bring into this movie but doesn't quite succeed at doing. Um, yeah, this movie, I've never been quite that interested in you know, kaiju. Uh, movies or uh, titles in any by any means and this movie did not convince me otherwise um i actually haven't seen the um, 2014 godzilla and i know that uh, a lot of people actually really enjoy that movie i did see kong's skull island and um i enjoyed that for like various reasons uh this one was just really dull and confusing at that um there are just so many baffling choices and um segues that did not really uh keep me interested I actually walked out halfway to get popcorn because I was like I need food for this um but yeah it's um I did I think that I was interested by some of the um elements like the more mythic elements like I was was talking about like you were touching on Ben um but I won't get into because it would probably be spoilery but uh I wanted to see some more of that because I thought that was weird and interesting and a little ambitious but um I feel like we didn't see enough of that, or Mike, uh, Doherty didn't like, you know, uh, follow through with it very well.
3: I think mm-hmm. the, the, a touchstone for us to talk about here is that a major character from the first Godzilla movie, the Gareth Edwards 2014 version, dies, and I did not realize his character dies until a long time later, when a character's looking at her, on, looking at the character on a screen, and says deceased. <laughs> and it, it was, it's not clear this character died, and another character. Another actress is playing twins in different areas of the world, and I was—I did not realize that that she was playing twins until I edited our spoiler review by Josh Meyer, and even he said he had to see it twice before he caught it. That's how and unclear the storytelling is here.
4: I, I noticed that the first time because it's Zhang Ji and she has, and her main character it has short hair and then the, her twin has long hair. And I was like, oh, what happened? Is this a flash forward to suddenly 10 years ahead or something? But no, it's just the twin who never appears or has a line of dialogue again. So it's very odd.
0: I think the reason for that confusion, Jacob, is because the movie is so bad at establishing its characters in geographic space. Like I, I mentioned, you know, for the big kaiju fights, uh, Doherty occasionally puts that camera back so you can sort of take everything in and see what's going on. And I feel like for the most part, that stuff is pretty successful. But the character stuff in this, the humans, I mean, people are, you know, suddenly at one location and then inexplicably the next moment at a totally different location. And I get that you don't need to show you know, I, I was watching uh, Dr. No for the first time in many, many years. Um, I don't know. Whoa, there's a big thunderstorm going on right now. <laughs> I'm in Florida, guys. Sorry about that. Um, I was watching Dr. No, like not too long ago. And that movie just spends so much time showing Sean Connery's bond, like literally doing every single thing where he like, opens the door and walks all the way across the room and sits down in a chair and opens a book and flips the page. You know, there's like they they go uh, to the extreme levels of showing every single action of a character. And I understand that in a modern storytelling sense, you don't want to do that with characters, but this movie is just jumping all over the damn place with its characters. And like somebody will be outside of a facility and it's raining and they'll be like screaming into the wind. And then like, two minutes later, they'll be, you know, on the other side of the world or something. It's so crazy.
3: Yeah, I was talking to somebody about Independence Day, which is a, a very silly movie, the original 1996 Independence Day. And that movie defies logic, it's cheesy, it's, it's ridiculous, but what it does is it has a massive, massive cast of characters, but it justifies all of them. Every single character in Independence Day has an arc, they go somewhere, their stories intertwine in ways that make sense, and the movie rolls, you realize that all the characters have been on a journey. And I look at this massive cast of really good actors. And I'm wondering, why is Thomas Middleditch here? Why is Bradley Whitford here? What is their journey? And you realize that this is just a big cast who does nothing. Nobody has a journey outside maybe two or three characters. There's, there's all this dead weight dragging down the already mundane human scenes. It, a second draft should have cut half this cast. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, Bradley Whitford is having a lot of fun. Um, So, I I mean, I'll give him that, but uh, I don't know if that translates into fun for the audience.
4: Bradley Whitford is the only one who knows what kind of movie he's in, and everyone else does not, except for maybe Ken Watanabe.
0: Oh,
3: poor Ken Watanabe. He's so wasted. He's (laughs) such
4: a good actor. He's so wasted in this movie, guys.
1: Can I play devil's advocate here and ask the question that I'm sure some people listening here
3: are, are thinking like, what if I just want some big monster action? There's more human stuff than monster stuff by a wide, wide margin. All the monster stuff is in the trailers. And I can't get over that. I can't get over how they they, they shot all, all the impressive, cool monster standoff stuff has been released online. And everything else in this two-hour movie is human beings walking around in an airplane going, What do we do now? What do we do now? And that's literally the movie.
1: I guess that's the problem with a lot of Godzilla movies nowadays, right? Like big monster movies. Like, it, it's hard to give the human characters weight when the, the, the monster characters are just so huge and destructive. Like, what, what can they actually be doing?
3: I think, this is my controversial opinion, I think the 2014 film did it right, whereas it leaned on the hopelessness of it. The human beings in Godzilla, the, the first one, are inconsequential. They... Cannot fight Godzilla. The movie is literally about them trying to clean up and stay ahead of Godzilla. And even though the characters themselves are maybe a little threadbare and they could have been written with more personality, their struggle, which is survival um, and just staying ahead of a fight they cannot comprehend, is so much more exciting than how do we team up with Godzilla and make him part of the US military, which is pretty much what Godzilla King of the Monsters is about.
1: Okay, let's talk about 4DX because I know Ben saw this in 4DX. Ben, is this the first time you've seen anything in 4DX?
0: It is the first time I've seen a movie in 40X. So I saw the trailer for The Meg last year in 40X because I had to write about it and it was like some special little event that they were doing to try to promote that movie. It was like a weird thing. But that was my first encounter with 40X. This is the first time that I've seen an entire movie in 40X. Not only that, I saw this film in what they're calling 40X Extreme, which has actually been around for a couple years. But it is where they turn all of the 40X effects all the way up to the maximum settings <laughs> um so uh, you know the invite that i got to this screening uh wait wait basically... so
1: it, can i see godzilla in just normal 40x is there like an option to see 40x and 40x extreme or is all the settings 40 x yeah, 40X yeah.
0: so so i i asked about this so at the regal la live which is in downtown los angeles which is where i saw it yes you there are basically two different types of screenings. You can see just a traditional 4DX movie. And then for no additional upcharge, you can, if you choose, see it in 4DX Extreme. I'm guessing that it's probably just like one screening per day or something is in Extreme. And if you want to see it, you have to go at a specific time or something along those lines. But uh, but yeah, I, I decided, you know, what the hell? Let's, let's crank this thing to 11 and see what this movie is like. And um, it was... Uh, I, a roller coaster ride beyond belief. Uh, I would not call it an enjoyable experience. I mean, I was being hurled around in my seat. I, I went with my wife, and both of us were, we spent, I don't know, a quarter of the movie just in like uh, audible laughter. And it seemed like a lot of the other theater, uh, you know, theater goers did as well, because out of the periphery, uh, you know, out of the corner of my eye, I could see her just being thrashed in her seat like the the you know a, a lot of this um movie is uh is monster stuff and and so that's of course where it really really kicks up but the camera the the um 40x effects are also timed to specific camera moves and stuff too so you get a little bit more of a subtle thing like during uh shots where the camera is like Floating up above the audience, or, or up, up above the characters, or it sort of like pans to the left. You'll sort of like glide around in your seat a little bit, even for like just small camera moves. But there's also, of course, like the water element where it's just like spraying you, and I, it's not like a a stream, like a nozzle of <laughs> of actual water that is spraying you in the face, which is what I frankly expected 4DX Extreme to be. It is really just you know the the same sort of like bursts of um of uh, like mist, basically. It's not like you're going to get soaked when you go to a movie like this. Um, But yeah, there were like air effects uh, blowing past your ears when people are shooting, you know, machine gun fire and stuff like that. Um, there was like lightning, like a uh, strobe light effects and all of that going off in the, the corners of the theater. At one point there was like smoke. Um, I guess like fog really like uh, a fog <laughs> effect came up when like Godzilla blasted something out of his mouth. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, wait, wait, it was, did,
1: did you smell anything? Was there any smell effects?
0: Yeah. I I mean, I didn't smell anything. I wonder if I didn't speak with my wife about this. I wonder if she caught anything that I just may have missed. But yeah, the the scents were not really um, that big of a thing. I think the only other thing that she experienced that I did not was I was wearing jeans. So I guess down at your feet at ankle level, she was wearing like a a skirt or a dress or something where like the back of her ankles were uh, open, like exposed. And I guess something like brushed past her ankles <laughs> a, a couple times during the movie or maybe it was just like an air blast or some some sort of uh you know uh, foot related effect was going on down there as well that i just didn't experience because or didn't feel because I, I was wearing uh long pants and i didn't i just missed out on that part so i was kind of bummed actually that i didn't get like the full experience and experience every single little thing but um i have to say that the You know, Jacob and and HG, both of you were talking about this movie just being like a little bit boring. I think the 40X Extreme effects really helped to mask that with this particular movie. I I feel like like I would have been so (laughs) bored. I would have watched this entire movie just with a straight face because it's not funny and it's not even really interesting. I would have just been, you know, stone face the entire way through. But being thrashed around so much in this 40X Extreme environment, at least made it, uh, it, it kept me awake. And I can say that about it. Yeah,
1: This is the future of cinema, Ben. It's the future uh, of
0: <laughs> I don't know about that. I really kind of hope that it's not. I do think it is kind of yeah. maybe interesting in small doses if you know what you're going into. But I don't know how, like, it, it was interesting for me as a novelty, my first time experiencing it. I don't know if I would ever go back and do it again. But I do think it improved my experience yeah. watching Godzilla King of the
4: monster how I, much do we need to pay Chris to see a movie in forty x I,
0: I I well he was almost gonna do
1: it at one point he was gonna drive into New York City uh I, Geostorm, like, storm right yeah storm <laughs> i i I actually would like to see a horror movie in forty x I feel like that could be fun if it was done well, which probably it won't be, but like I feel like using that thing behind your legs and like bursts of air could be cool for like jump scares,
3: yeah. Yeah, you yeah. mean it's tough to be a bug at Disney, the most terrifying film of all time, Peter? Yes, yes, it, it is terrifying.
1: <laughs> and by the way, uh, you did mention the strobe effects, where like strobes in the corners of the the room, so you like see it in your your peripheral uh, vision. Uh, this reminds me the thing I was going to bring up with X Men Dark Phoenix in the last twenty minutes of the movie, in the third act of the movie that I, I, I was watching. I, I guess I can say this because this is not I'm not embargoed for the experience, i am only embargoed for the movie, but someone set off the fire alarm in my movie theater in uh, MC Century City. So it was during a sequence where there's a breakout and this alarm starts going on and everybody in the theater thinks that the alarm is the alarm that's on, you know, part of the movie. And then it cuts <laughs> away from that sequence because they're in that sequence for a while and the alarm's still going on and everybody's like looking around like what is going on? The, the lights start flashing. So during like, the last 20 minutes of the movie, it was just non, non-stop alarm and lights flashing. And I just received an email in my email box from from Fox offering for me to see another press screening, to, uh, I think, tonight <laughs> to make up for that. But I, I'm not going to do that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, that was fun. That has never happened before. I, I was the, Honestly, the thing I was afraid for of the most it's not like this movie is being ruined but please don't let the movie stop because i've had that happen where like you know an alarm goes off and the movie stops and then they have to evacuate the theater and then like they can't restart the movie at that point point. and we were so close to the end of the movie i was like please let's just make it to the end, make it to the end <laughs> i don't want to you know uh see, see the movie again so uh yeah uh anyways okay let's move on to always be my maybe uh this is a movie that both brad and ht saw uh let's start off with ht what did you think
4: i surprisingly liked this movie a lot um i was a bit wary of it despite you know it being made specifically to cater to me because it's an Asian-American rom-com and it was basically willed into existence by the internet uh, after Ali Wong and Randall Park uh, started talking about doing a rom-com starring themselves. And uh, because of that, I think that was the reason I was worried because it's just like, oh, it's sort of like something that would be fan servicey and also would um, be within the realms of like the Netflix algorithm. And yet this was actually a... Genuinely good and um, emotionally uh, uh, appealing movie. Uh, There are some emotional beats like early on that hit me quite hard. And uh, it gets to the idea of family um, and just like uh, friendship turning to love really well. It has sort of shades of when Harry meets Sally doesn't quite accomplish that as well. But it's a really funny um, and really fun movie. I was surprised by how funny it was too, because there's just some really raunchy laugh out loud moments that um, made me laugh out loud. And uh, Ali Wong and Randall Park are great and hilarious in this, as is Keanu Reeves, who makes just the most fabulous um, cameo. Um this year, uh, maybe in the past decade, it's just it's great. He plays like this very self-serious version of himself. And it's just so satirical and so self-deprecating that you just can't help but love it. And the movie leans into that as well. So um, I really liked the part that this movie Uh, that food plays in this movie too, um, and how it kind of works into the idea that Asian cultures are not a monolith. Um, especially with the, with food playing such an essential part in almost all Asian cultures, it is the closest thing to universal language that we have with everyone. And uh, I really like that food was like that really pivotal part. Um, so what I'm saying is that I love this movie and um, it was really funny. And uh, I'm, while I'm excited about how it was incredibly um, sensitive and authentic towards like the Asian American experience, uh, not just in the main leads, but also the fact that there are Rare, barely any uh, white characters who have speaking roles. I think there's one white character with a speaking role, and she plays like a minor like, hostess character, um, and that was really exciting. Even the extras uh, reflects like the Bay Area in which this movie is set, and they're all a lot of them are Asian or um, diverse in some way, and that was really exciting for me. So even though this is a movie that was made specifically catered to me, it's actually a compelling and funny and really sweet and moving uh, rom com.
1: Yeah, uh, Brad, what did you think?
5: Uh, yeah, I also enjoyed this movie quite a bit. Um, it was better than I thought it would be. Uh, the the trailer made me chuckle a little bit, but I thought, um, I don't know, like maybe half the jokes kind of fell flat a little bit. But this this movie is extremely charming, um, mostly based on the chemistry between Randall Park and Ali Wong. Uh, they're fantastic in the lead roles. The stuff with Keanu Reeves is, seriously, it, it's a all-time great cameo. He is ruckusly hilarious like the movie amps up the laughs so much when he shows up and he Keanu Reeves just fully leans into making fun of himself and uh <laughs> it is just I, I it, it gets even crazier than you than you think too and he's just uh, a total nut in this movie I, I loved every minute of it um that, that, he, that he was in it and while while I do enjoy this movie a, a lot and I had a lot of fun watching it I still acknowledge that there are a pretty decent amount of shortcomings in this movie because I feel like it treats its supporting characters rather flippantly and half acidly tries to tie them into the main story in, in a way that they're supposed to be part of the main character's lives, but they're not really in any meaningful way. It, they just feel kind of tacked on. Uh, like in the movie, Randall Park has this, this hip-hop group that he's part of. And they try to make the band's dynamic part of his life and like introduce a little bit of like friendship drama alongside with the the romantic stuff. And it doesn't really work because we don't really get much of a sense of who those characters are. They try to do it in very cheap, shortcut ways. Um, and they're they're played by uh, Charlie Nee and Karen sony um, are are among them. And I just I don't know, it just felt like it was just a missed opportunity for me to not only add some comedy in there but also have a nice extra dynamic between characters. Um, and I kind of felt the same way about um the the friends that uh, Ali Wong has. She, her um, her assistant in the movie and is a, a, she's probably better portrayed than the other supporting characters. but um, throughout the movie, she's pregnant and they kind of use it more so as an opportunity to lace jokes about how, how Ali Wong's kind of, uh, I don't know an inappropriate like potential godmother for and that kind of thing and even though michelle buteau is great at playing this character i feel like they could have given her so much more more to do and have just have a bigger part of her life she's kind of the one who is the voice of reason for ellie wong and that that helped it a little bit but I, I don't know it just i i like romantic comedies where the supporting characters are just as memorable as the leads and i feel like that kind of fell fell short in this movie and then Uh, Sorry, H.T., you want to say something?
4: Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I think that while this movie does avoid the pitfalls of the Netflix algorithm, it does somewhat fall victim to a lot of rom-com tropes in which the supporting characters are just there to be supporting characters.
5: Yeah, and then my other big complaint with it is that, and this is kind of a complaint for all Netflix romantic comedies, is that I feel like this script really needed one more polish and maybe some punch-ups by other seasoned comedians, because obviously Ali Wong is a, a great comedian in, in her own right. Uh, she has very successful stand-up specials. Um, Randall Park is also hilarious, but I just feel like there needed to be an additional like set of eyes looking at this script and beef it up because it's just it feels like some of the jokes needed to be workshop and maybe even more needed to be added in because it, it is very funny, like especially when Keanu Reeves shows up. But it, I feel like sometimes it's just it falls flat a little more often than it should.
1: Okay, let's move on to Rocket Man. Jacob, you, you saw this film?
3: Yeah, I saw Rocket Man right after seeing Godzilla, so it's a pretty interesting double feature, and I really liked Rocket Man. Uh, granted, I am a big fan of Elton John and his music. I think if you pick an Elton John album from the 70s, you are picking up a classic that you just should have in your music collection, and that if you have not listened to Elton John uh, his early years, you should go and do that right now, and hopefully Rocket Man itself will have convinced you of that. This is a very, very good movie, and a step above the standard biopic. It's, at some, it's sometimes at war with itself, and I think Dexter Fletcher, the director, can't quite reconcile the two movies that play here at times. Like There are moments where it, it outright stumbles into being walk-hard. It, it stumbles into being a parody of itself, of, of biopics. Like There's literally a scene where Ellen John has a big concert, cue montage of newspaper headlines of, Ellen John is successful! cut to Elton John years later in a fancy office surrounded by art with someone literally saying to him, you're so successful, Elton John, now what? And it's, it's like, oh my God, this is like the worst biopic trope ever. But there are also scenes like where uh, Elton John uh, overdoses on pills and attempts to drown himself in a swimming pool. And as he's as he's drowning underwater, he, he hallucinates his childhood self at the bottom of the pool and has a duet of Rocket Man with his childhood self while he's drowning. And the duet continues as he's rescued and taken to the hospital, and he sings throughout this entire sequence of of his suicide attempt in the aftermath. And when the movie embraces being a full-fledged musical and embraces these fantastical elements and embraces the interior of Ellen John trying to put us in his creative mindset and use his songs to really power through uh, these these concepts that otherwise could have seemed mawkish, it is genuinely powerful, and Taron Egerton is astonishing here. He is doing all of his own singing. He's, an, he's in, doing an incredible performance. I mean, this this blows Remy Malek's Freddie Mercury out of the water. I mean, I, I, that boggles my mind that, Freddie, that, that that's going to be a movie that makes more money and wins an Oscar. But I, I wish that more of Rocket Man was the full-fledged of musical, song-and-dance, fantasy and less of the traditional biopic stuff, because it's an okay biopic, but a pretty incredible musical. And there are such incredible moments here. My, my, it, it's, it's an Elton John fan, my biggest complaint is that the only uh, Elton John album that's purely autobiographical, which is Captain Fantastic, the Brown Dirt Cowboy, doesn't get any songs here, even though it is the uh, even though the, the, the autobiographical parts of the album are covered extensively in the movie itself. But that's, that's my biggest net pick, and that's a small nitpick. so... Go see this movie, and if you like what you hear, man, you just need to listen to some of the best albums of all time if you haven't already. Uh,
0: ben, you like this more than me, right? I think so. Yes. Um, I-, I also was not a fan of the uh, those elements that you're talking about, where it's just like so familiar, and it's like it's hard to blame the movie for that because if they're telling the truth, then what that means is. Elton John just lived a typical rock star life. Like the reason that those tropes exist is because so many people experience the same trajectory. So it's hard to really bash them, but it just it feels so familiar and and like something you've seen a million times. But I totally agree that the best parts of the movie are when it embraces those fantastical elements. And I think Taron Egerton really gives a, you know, even in the moments that are, Ah, uh, I think Taron Egerton sort of elevates it, and you can feel the the soul in his performance there. So I, I think I did come away liking this a little bit more than you did.
3: Yeah, I wish it had been just more wall to wall musical stuff. And uh, I really, really liked Taron Egerton's uh, dynamic with Jamie Bell's Bernie Toppin. And I like to give I like to give Bernie Toppin time today because Bernie Toppin wrote all of Elton John's biggest songs, and they collaborated they've clab- collaborating for forty years. And and the fact that the the movie. I wish it doubled down on that friendship because it's, it's the most effective moment of the movie outside of the songs is those two having conversations and collaborating. But yeah, Rocket Man, it's good. It's really good. And if you like Elton John, you'll love it. And if you don't like Elton John, go see it because you probably do like Elton John, don't realize it yet. Um, <laughs> but I also watched uh, Game of Thrones, The Last Watch. And I'll be, I'll be brief on this because Ben talked about it last week. This is the feature-length documentary that HBO released about the making of the last season of the show. And it is... It's very good, and it intentionally sidesteps having uh, big scenes with most of the stars. I mean, Amelia Clark and Kit Harington get a few moments, but the vast majority of screen time is is on like the location manager, uh, an extra who's been in most of the seasons, the stunt man who's promoted to play the Night King, uh, the woman uh, who runs the coffee and snack cart near the set. It is just all these small people just making their living on Game of Thrones, and. Like, oh, there's a guy, he's he's the head of snow. His job is he runs a crew that, like, creates the fake snow and applies it to sets. And it's just a, a documentary. It's a tribute to all the unsung heroes, the below-the-line film crews who you never talk about. And, you know, the blue-collar, hardworking, typically Irish people who were just like, yeah, this has been my job for the past ten years. I'm sad to see it go. And it is just a lovely, lovely thing. Even if you've never seen Game of Thrones, but, like, really want to see the nuts and bolts of a massive production. It's it's really worth it. My favorite character was the uh, really harried location manager who at one point realizes that the extra smoking section is too close to some propane tanks and has to make decisions on a set like we need to move the extras loca- smoking location so we don't all die and there's, like little moments like that that really sell this as being like oh that's stuff that we never talk about we always talk about where the showrunner is doing where the actor is doing not what not the location manager making sure that extras don't blow up the propane tanks and I, I really love this doc.
1: Yeah, I, I love behind-the-scenes docs that show more of that kind of thing. I know the the Blu-ray for J.J. Abrams' original Star Trek had a bunch of stuff like that. And also there was a special feature, I think, on John Carter, which had a documentary that was about one day of filming. And they had like, something like 30 cameras around set capturing everything from the main actors to the craft service. And I thought that was also well done. Um, yeah, I, I want to see this. Okay, uh, let's talk to Chris. You mentioned you were at the Overlook Film Festival. What what were some of the, the highlights that you saw?
2: Um, you know, I saw several things. There's only two I really want to highlight. One is The Lodge, which I already saw. I saw that at Sundance, but I liked it so much I wanted to see it again. And uh, I wanted to make sure <laughs> I was right, basically, the first time I saw it. And uh, I was. I liked it actually even more the second time because – uh, without giving too much away, there's there's stuff that happens that you you pick up on more, even more so the second time. And uh, the audience I saw it with at Sundance and the audience I saw it with at at the Overlook both really ate it up. So uh, I, I'm pretty sure this is going to be a pretty. I don't, I, I'm not talking about blockbuster wise or budget or you know box office wise, but just in terms of buzz, I have a feeling the Lodge is going to be one of those buzzed about horror films when it comes out this fall it doesn't have a official release date yet just sometime this fall R- really briefly for people who don't know what is the lodge uh the lodge it stars riley kehoe um it, it, it's about these it's so hard to talk about this because the less you know the, the better it is but it, it comes down to this there are these two kids and their dad is getting remarried to this younger woman played by riley kehoe and these kids really don't like her and they don't want their dad to marry her even though she seems like a really nice person she's she's really soft-spoken and she's really kind and she's trying really hard to you know uh, be nice to these kids but they're just you know monsters like most children are children are assholes so that's a really believable (laughs) thing um so as fate would have it uh it's around christmas time And they all go up to this cabin in the woods or a lodge, if you will, and the father has to leave to take care of work and a a big snowstorm happens. And so the two kids and Riley Kehoe are essentially trapped together in the lodge. And that's all I'm going to say, uh, because anything more I tell you is going to really spoil how uh, crazy this movie gets. Okay, what about new movies that you hadn't seen before? Um, I saw Depraved, which is a new film from Larry Fessenden. Um, I don't know if people will know who he is. He's a very – he's like a, a legend in the indie horror scene. He, he's, he made uh, Wendigo. He made uh, a movie called Habit. Um, and uh, he, he he hasn't directed anything in a while. He's mostly just been producing and uh, appearing in movies. Um, uh, I'll, I'll say, like, even if you don't know – who he is by name. I guarantee if you've watched like an indie horror movie in the last 10 years, you've seen him because it's, it's almost like, like a law that he has to like pop up in some sort of cameo in those movies. Um, but this is his first time directing in a few years. And uh, I was excited just cause you know, it's a, it's a new movie from him and it, it's basically a, a remake or a new adaptation of Frankenstein. And knowing that going in, I was a little Uh, underwhelmed just because you know how many how many more versions of frankenstein do we need but i gotta say this movie is is fantastic um uh, you know i thought there was nothing new to do with frankenstein but he actually finds some really interesting things to do um uh, mostly because unlike most movies uh the, the this is told almost entirely from the monster's point of view which is actually kind of accurate to the novel um Mary Shelley's novel has a big, you know, section where it's, you know, it's the monster's story, but most of the time when the movies are made, it's, it's told from Dr. Frankenstein's point of view. And this, this reverses that. And you, he actually, uh, Larry Fessenden actually like sort of puts us in the head of, of the monster as he, you know, he's, he's, you know, quote unquote born again and learning to talk and learning to be, you know, uh, basically a human. And it's really just interesting. And it's, it's not what I would call a a scary movie at all. It's not, even though, you know, it, it is hard. It's, it's not trying to really be scary. It's, it's oddly like somber and melancholy. And what really impressed me is, you know, I, I don't know what the budget was for this movie, but I know it was practically nothing because most Larry, Larry Fessenden movies are, but you know, even though this was probably the lowest budgeted film I saw there, it looked better than almost every other film I saw at the festival, which just proves, what a good director Larry Fessenden is and how he can do so much with so little. Um, I don't know if this has an official release date yet. Uh, I know IFC picked it up. So they'll they'll probably be releasing it on VOD sometime this year, but uh, I, I highly recommend you search it out. It's called depraved.
4: Chris is the monster as surprisingly eloquent as the monster is in Frankenstein?
2: Uh, no they, they, he doesn't get as as chatty. he does talk you know obviously he, but he 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 stays a little monosabalic uh, as the, as the film goes on. I mean he by the end of the film he is talking more but yeah he's not as uh, verbose as he is in the book. <laughs> And I just
3: want to point out that if this piques your interest, there is a really excellent Shout Factory box set of a bunch of Larry Feston's directorial uh, work, and it's a really good c- crash course into why people want to cast him in small roles in all the indie horror movies.
2: Yeah, that that box set is great. Um, he he's great. He he just makes really interesting, low budget but fascinating films. Okay, let's uh let's move on to
1: Brad. Brad, what have you been watching this week?
5: Uh, so. So on my flight out to Utah, I watched *Instant Family*, uh, which is the comedy starring Mark Wahlberg and Rose Byrne as a couple who decide to adopt kids uh, instead of having some of their own. And I had heard that this movie was actually pretty decent, so I wanted to check it out for myself. And a plane seemed so like the perfect time to do that. And this movie is honestly surprisingly uh, really good. It's it's very funny. The comedy is much edgier. Uh, than I was anticipating. I was thinking this would be more of a a family-friendly comedy, but it's definitely much more uh, intended for adults, uh, which I guess I should expect from uh, Sean Anders and and John Morris being the filmmakers behind it. Uh, They've definitely done more uh, raunchy comedy uh, in their careers with uh, writing Hot Tub Time Machine and She's Out of My League and uh, We're the Millers. Uh, as well as co-directing *Horrible Bosses 2*, um, so but yeah, this is—I was incredibly uh, impressed by this. It's uh, not only is it very funny; uh, it's also genuinely char- uh, charming and touching. It, it gets a little, little bit like family cheesy at times, uh, but because the the story is focused um, on adopting kids, and it, it shines a, a much brighter light on the process of doing that, even if it is still simplified and doesn't necessarily dive into all the complexities that come with that kind of environment, um, and dynamic. It, it introduces a lot of scenes and concepts and things that you don't necessarily see in movies where you have kids that are adopted and living with a family. And I, I, I really appreciate that. And I, um, it's, it's very entertaining. So if you get a chance to check it out, I, w- I would definitely recommend, uh, seeing that it's, it's available on uh, Blu-ray DVD and on on demand and, and you can rent it and whatnot right now too. Um, I also finally got around to seeing Aladdin, and everyone is right. It's much better than the marketing made it out to be, even though it's still not great uh, or anything groundbreaking, but it is much more enjoyable than I anticipated. Um, I'm not as hot on Will Smith as everybody else seems to be. I feel like he was fine, uh, and sure, some of that comes from comparing it, him to Robin Williams, but I just feel like he's not super funny in this role. He's, he's very energetic, and he's clearly into it, but... I didn't think he did anything, you know, special. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a fine remake. You know, it's I'm not sure that it uh, it you know it was begging to be done or needed to be. Uh, but there's some cool sequences, and I like what it does with Jasmine as a character. It makes her uh, more important and gives her a lot more to do. Uh, and it was I, I was mostly satisfied with it. I mean, like you guys, did you guys end up liking Aladdin?
1: Yeah, uh, Ben really liked it. I I, I think I fall more in your camp of it's a lot better than you thought it was going to be, but it's still you know not quite the original.
5: Yeah, I don't know if it's my if my expectations were so low that I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah
4: I, it wasn't as terrible as I w- thought it would be, but I would still say it's aggressively mediocre.
0: That's fair. Um... <laughs> And that, Ben, Ben, did you really like it? I mean, I yeah, I don't know. Really like it, it seems strong. I do, I do think that it justified it, its existence by giving Jasmine more to do. Um, I think ultimately, that's the thing that I sort of came away with the most was her increased role and the fact that this movie uh, could be the entry point for these characters for a whole new generation of people. Um, I, I think it it ultimately is worth. You know the the headache that it caused to all of us just by existing, but I, I think it's going to do more net good in the world, um, because it exists. So, yeah, I, I think I, I ultimately came away liking it, and um, I yeah, more than I thought I was going to, certainly, but yeah, I, I certainly also see how uh, mediocre is probably a, a good way to still describe it, even you know, with even with all that stuff being said.
1: But by the way, it's crazy, last night when I went to the AMC Century City, I went to the Disney store in that mall, and last time I had been there, just a couple weeks ago, they had, like, the whole front of that mall was just basically dedicated to Aladdin merchandise uh, for this new film, and now it's, like, all been replaced by Toy Story 4, so they've already moved on. Like, (laughs) the Disney store has moved on already, uh, which is crazy. Um, I mean, maybe that's more of a comment of how many films Disney has coming up, but... Uh, Brad, what have you? What else have you been watching? And so, uh, the other thing I've been watching
5: is uh, my girlfriend convinced me to watch uh, the Great British Baking Show. Um, we watched the most recent season, and it's not that I don't uh, like shows like this, but I usually just don't go out of my way to, to watch them because um, they're they're just they're fun for absolutely. But like I, I just never feel compelled to like sit down and be like, oh, I need to watch all of this. Uh, but the show re- really is just a lot of fun to watch and. Uh, they're, they're, the people competing are so impressive and talented and so great to see uh, how they come up with these different, you know, uh, confectionery things and just the des- intricate designs and just panicking and trying to figure out how to make these things. Um, so many delicious things. And I, I also love that this is a competition show where everyone is just really nice to each other. Every now and then the judges have some, you know, kind of unkind things to say if, if the their, their recipes don't turn out as well as they're supposed to. But even then, like they're still kind of polite about it, um, and that, like all the competitors like really support each other and are friends, and and it's just it, it really is just a fun uh, show to watch to help pass the time. I I really liked it. Does anybody else watch this?
3: Yeah, we've talked about this uh, a bit in uh, past episodes, but the Greatest, greatest Baking Show is proof that the human race deserves to survive at least a little bit longer. It is so nice and sweet and gentle. I mean,
2: I wouldn't go that far, but it is a wonderful show.
4: The only thing – I don't watch it, but the only thing I know about it is uh, the uh, absurd amount of innuendo that takes place throughout the episodes.
3: But it's all like PG-13 innuendo, and everybody's having a good laugh, and no one gets hurt.
4: Yes, that's good.
5: (laughs) That's true. And there's very, very, very British humor throughout.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And that's available on Netflix? Yes, it is. Uh, Ben, what have you been watching?
0: Uh, I am in Florida visiting a family, and uh, I was at my in-laws' house, and we watched No Country for Old Men on Netflix. My wife had never seen it, and I have not seen it since 2007 when it came out. And, man, this movie just is like a crackling piece of cinema. This thing rules. I uh, I, I remember mostly the ending and how, how disappointed I was with the fact that it just ends. Um, and But I, I didn't remember how much of this movie is just a a straight up old school chase film. Um, I was shocked to, to sort of realize that you're thrown into the action so quickly. And the majority of the movie is just this really tense uh, cat and mouse thriller. And I, I really came away liking this movie. I mean, I enjoyed it the first time, even though I was sort of let down by what I considered to be an abrupt ending. But I think um, I don't know if it's just age or what, but I, I think I've I've come away with it with an even bigger respect for it now. Has anybody seen this movie recently? What do you guys think about No Country for Old Men? I think oh, this movie won Best Picture, didn't it? It, it?
3: did. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. And that ending, I know it was controversial at the time because I know some people who loved it until the ending, but uh, ending with that final line from that from that actor and what the final line is leaves you feeling so helpless in the way it, and that's what the story really needs at that point is that character feels useless to change the violent world around him. And it leaves you feeling helpless and useless to do it, to, to help him in any way to resolve a very bad situation. And it's frustrating until you sit with it for years and you realize it's the only way that movie could have ended.
2: Yeah. yeah. What he said. <laughs> I don't know. That ending has never bothered me. I never understood why it bothered people. But maybe that's because at heart, I am an old man and I always have been and I'm slowly dying. So uh, (laughs) but the ending really never bothered me. I always thought it was really cool. But I actually I distinctly remember when I saw it in theaters, when it cut to black, half the audience was like, what? But I don't know. it, It never really bothered me.
0: Yeah, I think, I think I was just, I wanted it to be, I, I wanted to see everything. I wanted there to be closure. And this is not a movie, like Jacob said, you know, I guess you just have to sit with it for a little while and, and really like ponder its themes and what the the larger point of the film is. But I think ultimately it's not really a movie about, you know, tying things up with a, uh, with a bow. It's about huge things, huge ideas, you know, the nature of evil and like how we survive in, in a uh, an ugly world and stuff like that so the ending makes a lot of sense to me now and I think I was just on like a visceral level I was just disappointed that it, it sort of cut to black when I wasn't expecting it the first time but um, revisiting it the second time I think it's really great so that's No Country for Old Men it's on Netflix right now and highly recommend revisiting that or or maybe checking it out for the first time if you've never seen it but uh, the only other thing that I've been watching is the 1951 Alfred Hitchcock movie called Strangers on a Train this is also on Netflix and, and this is a movie about two guys who meet on a train. Uh, one of them is a tennis player. The other one is a psychopath. And the the psycho seems to know everything about the tennis player, including his uh, romantic situation. He's like the, the tennis player is like engaged to or uh, I guess uh, in a relationship with a woman who is not his wife. And the psycho suggests that they should exchange murders because the psycho hates his own father and he wants the tennis player to kill his father and he will bump off the tennis player's wife. And because they've never met each other before, this is the perfect murder scenario because they're just, they're, each of them are killing strangers. And so nobody will ever be able to trace it back to them. That's the, the idea there. Um And so the psycho actually kills the guy's wife, and then the whole rest of the movie is him trying to convince the tennis player to kill his father and sort of complete this deal that the tennis player never actually agreed to in the first place. This guy is just insane. Um, so it, it's a fun premise. Uh, and and I
1: feel like a lot of people probably who are not old enough to to go back and watch Elver Hitchcock movies probably know this premise from Throw Mama from the Train, which is kind of loosely a remake of this film, right?
0: Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that because I've yeah. actually never seen that movie. So that's I think uh, I'm that's correct cool. there.
1: Jacob, am I correct?
0: I've never seen it either.
4: Oh wow, I, okay. Yeah.
3: You are you
2: are you are correct. Okay.
3: Here. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where Ben's going with this. but Strangers on a Train rules. So yeah. I also
4: want to chime in and say I love Strangers on a train. Be careful what you say um, next, Ben. <laughs> 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 well
0: I you know this movie is it's uh co-written by Raymond Chandler who is like one of my favorite uh noir authors so it has a little bit of that um that sort of that that perfect murder scenario you sort of feel Chandler's presence uh you know lurking beyond uh just outside the corners of the frame but um yeah I, I think you know for me the movie sort of it drags a little bit until it gets to the conclusion which I'm going to spoil here because I can't avoid talking about this and it's one of the most enjoyable things that has happened in a movie to me for in a long time in a movie that i've seen so i have to spoil this so if you're interested in strangers on a train especially based on jacob and hd's recommendation watch it on netflix and uh maybe fast forward just a couple minutes in this podcast but for those of you who have no interest in watching this i just have to tell you go to netflix and watch just the last like 20 minutes of the movie because it ends in a like a Uh, an amusement park on a carousel. And one of the, so the two guys that I mentioned in the beginning, the the two main characters are chasing each other. They meet up at this carousel and they jump on and they're trying, they're like fighting on a carousel that is crowded with children. There's like mothers standing around tons of uh, innocent people in this whole thing. The cops converge on this carousel and one guy fires into it like a live round of ammunition kills the guy who is operating the, the carousel who then cranks the carousel accidentally as he dies his body he shoves the carousel into full on berserk mode and this thing just starts spinning out of control and it's like hurling uh, you know like uh, the the carousel pieces like the, the horses and all of the creatures and stuff it, it's just like breaking down because it's going so fast and all the while these guys are fighting on top of it at one point one of the guys grabs on to uh, one of the the poles on the outside of the carousel and he is like completely uh, elongated. He's like totally stretched out and like grabbing, you know, barely grasping onto this thing as they're spinning around at like 90 miles an hour or something. It is a scene that comes out of nowhere, but it is like one of the most impressive, ridiculous set pieces that I can think of from a, a movie that was directed in 1951. And uh, man, this thing, I mean, it, it, the... It just builds to the totally ludicrous conclusion that uh, I was sort of lulled to sleep. I mean, not to sleep. I, I never actually fell asleep while I was watching this movie, but it's it sort of there's a long tennis game tennis match that happens right before it. that sort of like drags out forever. But then it just cuts to this this chase scene and that ends with this carousel. And it is incredible. And I was reading a little bit about it. And there's like a. Man, just, yeah, watch that scene, if nothing else, and then go to Wikipedia and read the entry for *Stranger on a Train, because there's some pretty incredible stuff in here about, like, how they actually did this. They they used miniatures, but then there was actually a real uh, uh, carousel and and a guy crawled underneath it, and it was actually happening. Like, Hitchcock was super nervous about filming it because it was just a, a guy who worked at a carnival who, like, offered to... Crawl underneath the thing and go up into the middle and and pull the lever to stop the the carousel. Um, and this was like a super dangerous stunt that like wasn't actually done by an actor or a professional stuntman. It was just like some guy who worked at the carnival they were shooting at. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff about the making of this movie too. But um, yeah, anybody else want to uh, ch- you know uh, sound off about *Strangers on a Train*? I have ben, a story. Need... Oh. <laughs> oh, go, ahead, <laughs>
4: Sorry, go go
0: ahead. My story is a good caper to this. I'll let you go first, HT.
3: Okay.
4: Then they don't need to watch this scene because you just describe the whole thing but, but like um, <laughs> seeing
0: it it's like so insane i mean yeah I, I certainly did uh you know spoil it but just like the the um insanity of it you know like watching it is a whole nother thing
4: uh, yeah well I, what i actually like about that scene is that it's kind of a predecessor for um alfred hitchcock going really big budget and very grandiose with his set pieces like in North by Northwest, where he likes to stage the big climactic scenes in the most ludicrous situations. I think North by Northwest happens on Ra- Mount, Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, think. correct. Yes, so um, it's it's really fun to see where like where his uh, beginnings are take place. But uh, what I really like about Strangers on a Train um, is that it's one of Hitchcock's uh, films that have a latent displays of homoeroticism um, that kind of are. Un- underpinnings throughout the the film. This and Rope, I think, have really interesting uh, sort of not commentary, but sort of uh, suggestions of um, homosexuality and uh, how this kind of drives the conflict in a way. Um, There are many uh, great articles talking about this or great pieces talking about this um, but yeah that's one, uh, one thing I wanted to point out about Strangers on a Train which I always really enjoyed when I first saw and which kind of helps um, if you're like being lulled by some of the moments if you read into some of um, those long uh, tense scenes uh, it kind of makes it more interesting in that regard.
3: Yeah, definitely. It should be noted that Patricia, uh, Patricia Highsmith, who wrote the original novel and also wrote, you know, The Talented Mr. Ripley, among other novels, uh, was a lesbian, and all of her movies, are, or all of her books, are loaded uh, with um, homo- homoeroticism. And the film adaptations, where even if they try to hide it, it's all in there, and they, they, they can't escape it. And I kind of love that. Um, I, I haven't uh,
1: seen this movie since my early teens, and, and, and after reliving that ending with your, ex- your your description, I want to actually go back and see it.
3: Uh, you could have relived it at one point at Universal Studios Florida, Peter, uh, at the uh, Alfred Hitchcock, the Art of Making Movies exhibit that used to be there. And here's a story that I just want to share because it ties the entire podcast together. It began with theme parks, went to Hitchcock, now we're back at Universal Studios Florida. Uh, the, Alfred, the, uh, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, the Art of Making Movies, was a series of, of very large rooms dedicated to Alfred Hitchcock and his films. In the final area, was a whole bunch of like little set pieces that recreated a bunch of famous sequences from his films, including one corner dedicated to Strangers on a Train, where they had a uh, little piece of the carousel and a, a clip explaining how they shot the scene and a university was, like, employee who like would let you go in front of a green screen to like, rear project yourself into the scene. And when we were done with this exhibit, I turned to my mom and said, well, wow, Alfred Hitchcock seems really cool. I should go watch his movies. And then I became a movie fan. So thank you, Theme Parks. Thank you up, Hitchcock. And thank you, Stranger on Train, because I'm here right now because of this movie and Universal Studios Florida.
0: Wow, it's yeah. an origin story moment for you, Jacob.
1: Yeah, no, I, I discovered Hitchcock in the same way. I don't quite remember the Stranger, uh, Strangers on the Train segment of that, but I remember there was like a, a place in the corner which had the apartment building from um, – Rear window. Rear window, window. Yeah, where it actually has like all the windows. Like there's projections in all the windows. So you could actually like watch it from like his point of view of like seeing everything that's happening. And I, I remember they also recreate the psych the scene from Psycho and I, all that got, got me to get into Alfred Hitchcock. And now there's no Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, there's basically yeah. the Psycho House on the it's trick uh, trick 4D now. Yeah, sad, <laughs> sadly.
3: Yeah,
1: so much of. Both Universal Studios and MGM Studios, which is now Hollywood Studios, got me like really enhanced my love of not just movies, but making movies because all those rides and attractions back then or most of them were kind of like, here's how the movies are made. And now it's kind of like I, I, I know Universal always had the, the tagline ride the movies, but now it's like you're in the movie and it, it doesn't matter how the movie's is made, but, which is kind of sad. Um, it's the
4: Ready Player One experience, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Totally. Okay, HC, what have you been watching this week?
4: Um, so this uh, is kind of late coming because the Nazca, the Valley of the Wind anniversary event in which the film ca- returned to theaters for two days uh, for its 35th anniversary passed two weeks ago. But I was actually kind of inspired by um, – Godzilla to watch Nausicaa the Valley of the Wind because Godzilla King the Monsters touches on some themes uh, which again it doesn't look quite follow through on of the earth sort of um, not taking vengeance or take but taking back taking itself back from humanity and that sort of a uh, all encompassing power of nature and everything and um, I was inspired to watch Rewatched watched Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which I had received a Blu-ray copy of um, in celebration of his 35th anniversary. Ironically, uh, I came back to my parents' house and I had forgotten to bring that Blu-ray copy. But luckily, back at my parents', I have the entire uh, Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli collection, which I accumulated over the years. So I was able to watch the old DVD, which doesn't have quite the quality of the Blu-ray, but So I put that in and it has some really fascinatingly old features uh, from back when uh, the City of Ghibli films were under the Disney umbrella. But now, um, but I got to rewatch it and this movie is just, it's still so good. Um, I haven't, I think this is one of the... Miyazaki films that I haven't quite rewatched as much as my favorites like Spirited Away and Castle in the Sky and Kiki's delivery service. But, um, it's so impressive each time. And it really is the purest distillation of Miyazaki's own ideas and, uh, beliefs, especially in regards to the environment. And, um, he, it's him like, uh, at full, at full blast. What am I, I can't think of the word I'm the expression, but, um, he this is the movie that kicked off studio ghibli and basically like helped found the studio and um it's so action packed and the animation is so immaculate uh despite being released in 1984 and um the the filmmaking is just so gorgeous that um it's it really is timeless um it tells the story of a uh, princess who uh, lives in this the so-called Valley of the Wind in a far future, just dy- uh, a dystopia, I guess, uh, in the post-apocalyptic world in which the world has been entirely de- devastated uh, by um, conflict, and uh, now the these toxic forests have grown out and taken over the world. And uh, humans can't live or breathe near these forests or the toxins will take over and they will and they will get killed. And uh, these forests are also populated by huge insects that um, will go on rampages and kill humans as well. But um, Nausicaa is this warrior princess who believes that the humans and the insects can live in harmony. And yet there is this big um, rising conflict of uh, another war that will possibly, uh, that is trying to rid the world of these forests and these insects. So it's just such a an ambitious and unique um, story. And uh, I really appreciate, too, um, how ambitious it was upon rewatch. Because I haven't, I don't think I've seen it since... Um, I was in middle school. And uh, it really struck me too. I, this might be because I'm currently rereading uh, Lord of the Rings through an audiobook. It struck me how um, influenced this was by J.R.R. Tolkien's vision of um, fantasy, because it has that high fantasy element. And uh, The Valley of the Wind, especially, has sort of Tolkien esque. Um, settings to it which I found really fascinating uh, it kind of goes to Miyazaki's own uh, influences in terms of like his movies often take place in sort of European-esque um, settings and yet they have a distinctly uh, Japanese sort of um, mentality to them of peace and harmony and often of uh, um, ooh, what's Shinto beliefs as well so um Yes, the Valley Wind. Still rips.
1: Cool. Uh, Brad, what have you been eating this week? I got
5: my hands on some new cereals. Um, the, the cereal rush is, was back recently, and I picked them up and tried them out. Um, there are two new cereals that are being called Fillows, which is uh, a play on the words Pillows. Uh, because these cereals are filled with uh, filling inside, kind of like the crave cereals that have been out for a while. Um one of them is uh, Hershey's cookies and cream, and the other one is Pillsbury cinnamon rolls. And so the the cereal is uh it's a traditional kind of cereal outside and then the inside it has uh, a filling inside of it, kind almost like a, kind of like a koali yummy, I guess you would say. Um, and they're they're both really good. the The filling inside of them is great, the Hershey's cookies and cream one. It almost tastes like the way that I wish the Oreo cereal tasted like that came out a long time ago because when I had the Oreo cereal, I thought it was gross. Uh, but this is really good. It doesn't really taste like the Hershey's Cookies and Cream candy bar, but like I said, it tastes like an Oreo cereal. So that's really good. And the uh, the Pillsbury Cinnamon roll one is, is also great too. It um, I, I actually tastes better than the, the Hostess uh, Honey Bun cereal. This, because of the frosting that they have inside of it or whatever, whatever filling it is um, that replicates the cinnamon roll taste, it, it tastes much more uh, like it than the other one did. So both of those are really good. And then uh, they also came out with two new cereals um, that are drumstick cereals, drumsticks being the, the ice cream cones that you can buy uh, in stores that have a chocolate coating and are filled, filled with ice cream, have a, a waffle cone. And so they turned uh, two of flavors into cereals. They have a vanilla cone one and a uh, chocolate mint one. Um, and it has three different pieces. And it. it has what are basically Cocoa Puffs, uh, Waffle Cone pieces, which are basically like gra- uh, um, Honey honeygrams. That's the name of that cereal, isn't it? Uh,
1: graham? Uh, honey grams, I think.
5: Yeah. Isn't, isn't that what it is? Nut Cheerios? No,
3: no. no I haven't had so cereal in like grams. five years. So. It's,
5: the, it's, the, it's the square like Graham Cracker cereal. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's honey grams, Yeah, um, cinnamon toast crunch. No, <laughs> <laughs> they're all the same. They all taste the same. And then it has um, each of the cereals has different corn puffs that are that are flavored like the the respective ice cream, the the, the mint one and the vanilla one. And both of those are really good too. Um, the they're very they don't taste they really like the ice cream cone. They just taste like a really good kind of like candy ish. Uh, cereal and so I, 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 was, I thought those might taste a little bit kind of cheap like malto meal cereal but they're they're actually really good um, and then on the soft drink side of things Mountain Dew has a new uh, flavor that I stumbled upon I didn't even know that it was coming out but it's called Liberty Brew and it literally has apparently 50 different fruity flavors in it that's what it says on the label uh, in honor of the, the 50 nifty United States um and it's it's actually really good i would thought with all those flavors i would be like "Ugh, what is why what are you doing but it kind of tastes like almost as if you take like a small handful of gummy bears and put them all in your mouth instead of eating them one flavor at a time it tastes like that in a soda form so if that sounds appealing to you then you might want to try mountain dew liberty brew
3: Brad, did you just say 50 nifty united states i did from 13 original colonies shout them spout them yeah. all about them this just canceled out my antidepressants. I want to go walk off a bridge. Thanks, Brad.
5: Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't you guys learn 50 Nifty United States? No. How did hear of that? Are you serious? So in in elementary school, we we there was a song that we learned that was called 50 Nifty United States and uh, the song allows you to list all of the United States in alphabetical order in same sing-
0: yeah. song. I know what you're talking about, Brad.
5: Yeah, and I still know it. <laughs> <laughs> um so but yeah, so Mountain Dew Liberty Wait wait, wait,
1: Brad, you got to sing it.
5: Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> um <laughs> 15 Please don't. United States from 13 original colonies, shout them, spout them, tell all about them, one by one, to have given a name to every state in the USA. Alabama Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, (laughs) Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, North Carolina, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, um, South Carolina, South Dakota, (laughs) Tennessee, Texas. Utah, Vermont, Virginia, Washington, West Virginia, Wisconsin,
1: Wyoming. <laughs>
3: <laughs> wow,
1: Jacob, are well you done. still depressed over this? No, <laughs>
3: uh, uh, you talk me back, Brad. You talk me back. Because <laughs> I, I don't feel Uh-oh. like I could
1: name all those states. This kind of reminds me of the McDonald's menu song. Like, there's no real like melody there. It's just like you naming off states. Yeah, it's a,
5: it's just you're listing it, and it's vaguely in sing song. <laughs> <laughs> it's nowhere the near as only... clever as the Animaniacs song where Yakko lists the countries of the world. Yeah.
4: The only <laughs> listing song I know is the Poker Rap <laughs> from Pokemon. <laughs> okay,
3: HT, we need the Poker Rap now.
4: No, <laughs> no.
3: <laughs> oh man. Okay,
5: so and then the last uh, new soft drink I tried is there's a uh, new Dark Berry Dr Pepper that's been released in conjunction with Spider-Man: Far From Home. Uh, it's supposed to like represent Mysterio. And I wasn't expecting it to be that good because I don't like berry flavors traditionally. But it um, it's actually pretty tasty. It uh, doesn't taste like medicine, which a lot of artificial berry flavors do. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's actually really good. If you happen to see that at a gas station or store, pick that up because it, it tastes pretty good.
1: Yeah. I've been uh, busy eating all – like otherworldly foods at Galaxy's Edge. Again, I'll put the link to the video in the show notes if you want to see that. But let's uh, move on to our last segment, what we've been playing. I'm, As you know, I'm not usually a video gamer. I have not really owned a console since maybe uh, GameCube, I guess? And I barely own that. Um, but uh, I talked two weeks ago about playing Oculus Quest. I, I did that uh, Vader Immortal experience and I tried out... Beat Saber over a friend's house, and Oculus Quest went on sale, and uh, it was sold out everywhere. It's actually almost impossible to get to get. And I had the screen for Best Buy on my on my computer, and every day I just like refresh it once. And a Best Buy like in Torrance, which is kind of far from here, uh, somehow got a return or something. And I, I think it was a combination of. Me wanting to get this for fitness, which I'll talk about in a second. Uh, and also, like, this is a thing that everybody, like, that's sold out everywhere and it's available to me to buy online and go pick it up. I, like, insta-buyed it, um, which I, I know is a a heavy purchase for an insta-buy. But um, my thought was: if I bought it and I didn't like it, I could return it. Right. So we drove to Torrance, we picked it up. Um, and w- w- what my idea here is, is um, I want to get some exercise. I do some walking every day. I've been losing weight. As you know, I've lost like 50 pounds now. And uh, I'm not comfortable enough uh, in my own skin to be jogging down the street yet. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, so I, 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 I like doing things inside. I like doing treadmills and stuff like that. And Beat Saber is this game, it's a music game where you have two like lightsabers and you're basically hitting these objects that are coming at you, these boxes that are coming towards you in rhythm to the music. And uh, basically it was a system seller for me to buy this. And Oculus quest is awesome. By the way, it is a VR headset that everything is built into the headset. So that means you don't have to own a console. You don't have to own a whole PC rig and you are not tethered by any uh, wires of any kind. You basically go like I went to my living room and drew an outline Of where the area where there was no obstructions, no you know nothing I could bump into like couches and stuff like that, and basically it creates the VR environment where you can walk within that environment in that drawn out space, which is pretty cool. And uh, so uh, I've been playing this a lot. I've uh, my my dogs like watching me with uh, in disbelief, being like, "What the heck is he doing?" Uh, You know. you know throwing my hands in in the air and, and stuff like that I also got a game called Super Hut uh, have have has anybody else here gotten into VR
3: uh, I've played a little bit of VR but I've never owned a console but I can vouch for super hot the non- VR version of that's great Oh there is a non VR version Wow yeah the non, they, they, they adapted it for VR and I believe they were uh, they, it's changed super hot VR is different than console and PC VR. But the, the, the actual one I play on my computer is a really, really cool game. So I'm really curious. you talk about the, the VR version.
1: Yeah. No, it, it's awesome. You are first person and it, it's basically like you are living within the idea of Matrix bullet time. So – uh, you are in these scenarios where you're giving guns and th- all sorts of things, and you are trying to stop these bad guys that are either robbing a place or or, or whatnot. It's very simplistic, very minimalistic look. It's it's all white and red. Uh, it's two-tone. And um, people don't move unless you move. So time stops when you freeze. So, basically, you're able to do these amazing things where you're able to, like, punch a guy, and then he'll throw up his, like, the gun that was in his hand. You're able to, grab it, and while you're grabbing it, turn and shoot the guy to your left, and then – do you know what I mean? Like, you're able to do these, like, amazing bullet time John Wick style – it it makes you feel, like, such a badass, and – I don't know. I, I love this game so much. Uh, I've gotten up to a point where you get like some kind of superpower, which I'm not going to go into here. But it, the game advances in, in interesting ways, and I, I can tell you, I've been playing this while I've been home. Uh, you know, for hour long periods, and my watch tells me I've burned tons of hundreds of calories, and I I am just left because I'm out of shape, left like you know soaking wet and sweat, and having to go take a shower. Uh, I I think this is actually a pretty cool way to 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 burn some calories and to get into shape uh last week before i went to galaxy's edge i had, i had lost more weight than i had in a couple months in that week that i had this um but now you know i went to galaxy's edge i gained some i gained six pounds so 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 there you go but uh i i am enjoying oculus quest and uh as, as someone who doesn't play games I can definitely see like there's even like experiences that you can do like they have built in like there's an experience where you like just play with this like robot and like it, all these like cool um, it just makes you smile like the the things that you can do in this virtual world it looks so good and uh, I I am just having a blast with my Oculus Quest
3: so uh, I think the future for the future of VR for me Peter when it comes to experience like this is, is horror games. Um, the horror games I played for VR that um, have been well done have been incredible because even a jump scare that would not work uh, in a movie kills in VR so if you get a chance try out some um, horror experiences because they're they're often really incredible. Oh
1: even in Super Hot like there's times where you turn around and you don't realize there's a guy behind you with a gun in your face and actually having that gun like in your face it is freaking scary guys like, like I, i've jumped i've i've, I've uh yeah it, it's uh it's a lot of fun anyways uh jake how, how much how much are the games for oculus quest uh how much are the games the range i think there's some there's some that are free there's some that are like five bucks some 10 and i think they go up to like 25 so it really depends on what you're what you're trying to buy like some of the more licensed stuff i think like creed i didn't buy it but it's like 25. um but
5: is it worth is it worth it? Because it costs four hundred dollars,
1: right? Yeah, it's it costs four hundred. Well, that, that that really depends. Brad, is it gonna, gonna be something you, you're gonna play, or is it gonna be something that you're gonna play once and put it down? For me, I've been very interested in, in keep on doing it. And also, there's um, it's really cool that uh, I I have a huge projection screen TV in my living room. Like it's like one hundred and fifty inches. It like takes up an entire wall. But if I did not have that, there's a feature that's for free in here that you can watch movies or you can watch your YouTube like you're sitting in an IMAX theater and it like really feels and look like the scope and the 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 size of the screen. It feels like even if you're sitting on your couch, it feels like you're like in a movie theater getting that experience. Um so there's even like stuff like that that I feel like is beyond just playing games that could benefit people. I don't know. Uh, okay. I, I I mean, VR is still in its early stages here. And uh, who knows, like how many developers are going to make things for this. Uh, I know that I, I know, Brad, you played Vader Immortal, and I, I want to play more chapters of that. So for that alone, I was interested. And now with the fitness aspect of it, I, I think I'm in. I'm not returning this. So. And I, uh, Vader Immortal, so you know, uh, that the first chapter is 10 bucks, and that I think is like an hour long experience. So if that gives you any indication, I think each additional chapter will be like 10 bucks or so. Um, okay. Yeah. So, uh, Jacob, what have you been playing?
3: Uh, I finally got my long, gestating Star Wars RPG game to the table. Uh, we're doing a six-session game. meaning you know, No matter what happens, our game reaches the climax after uh, six games. And we're uh, using Fantasy Flight games as uh, Star Wars RPG. I'm actually blending two of their books. Uh, uh, Edge of the Empire, which, where people play as criminals, and Age of Rebellion, where people play as rebels. And the basic gist is that what I do when, I'm, when I create r- uh, RPGs, when, when I'm running the game, is I don't follow modules, I don't follow pre-written storylines. I create a massive word doc full of possible events, a massive cast of, of characters who the characters who my players could possibly meet, and a bunch of contingencies for things that could happen if they choose to do something. So the idea being that, um, I, I to, to paraphrase a popular uh, game-running quote, I play to see what happens. I don't play to see them fulfill a pre-written story. I don't play um, to watch the players follow a specific road. I play to watch them tell a story and me have to react to it. And so I'm as surprised as the players are, and it forces everybody to improv- improvise and get be on our feet. And so many amazing things like happen when you play like this because character people who create their characters in isolation, it turns out that you know they share something in common that neither of them saw coming. So I can bring that into the story. So what was just like me someone saying this would be cool if I do this ends up being a plot point, or there could be situations where like in the first game. Uh, the setup was a group of rebel soldiers and a group of uh, criminals and bounty hunters are all in the same j- jail cell on planet and, and they have to find a way to escape. And I'd written down a bunch of ways, like if they escape this way, maybe this will happen. Escape this way, this could happen. And so I was kind of like just following along, never suggesting they do something, waiting for them to r- respond and make suggestions so I could react to it and, and give them stories so they, that I feel like they're driving it. And they escape in a spacecraft more or less. And I have my notes. Oh, they're going to go land in, on, on, in the city, in the streets, and go find somebody to you know help them out. And then one player asks me, "What do we see looking around?" So I describe the city. I describe a bunch of like skyscrapers. I say, "Oh, there's a even a fancy hotel." And one of the players says, "We're driving for the hotel." And I had made up the hotel on the spot. This is not in my notes, so I had to now improvise a set piece where they go try to dock at this intergalactic hotel, and. They rolled very poorly, and they're crashing into the hotel, and a massive gunfight breaks out. People are falling outside the building and falling in the balconies, and <laughs> afterward, all the players are like, man, Jake, I can't believe you planned that set piece. And I said, I didn't. I didn't make it up, because you guys didn't follow anything I'd written down in advance. And for, for me, that is the fun of our RPGs, is that, uh, is that everybody feels like the story is happening organically when it is totally not, when they are telling as much as I am, and everybody was really excited, and we're going to play again, hopefully, in the next couple of weeks, and... Man, like if if you play RPGs and like follow pre written adventures, that's totally fine. But I really recommend trying it like this sometime, where you where everybody goes in with no expectations and no story, and see how the story evolves because it's so gratifying.
1: Very cool, um, Brad. You've been playing something?
5: Yeah, so I we had a little bit of a like a picnic thing on Sunday with my girlfriend and some of her family who lives here, and one of her friends brought this game that is called. Uh, kub which is a a Swedish word and it's a it's a yard game um that I had never played before even seen before but basically the setup is it's it's kind of like bowling mixed with horseshoes in a way but um it's it's all these like uh different wood pieces there's uh a bunch of um basically uh wooden uh blocks that are a little bit taller And they are uh, wide. You set them up in a line uh, opposite uh, opposite from each other. So there are two lines, and that establishes the the field. And then you have these six uh, wooden batons that you have to throw across from from behind your own line of wooden blocks to try and knock the other ones down. And that's simple enough. But then what happens is when you you knock down uh, one of the other team's wooden blocks, then they uh, grab it and they have to throw it across the field. And there's this uh, like castle block that sits in the center and you have to toss it um, to add to your own lineup of blocks that you have to knock down in addition to the line that's behind it. So, and the, the thing, the catch there is that the block that you throw wherever it lands, if you don't knock that block down in the middle of the field, then the opposing team gets to throw their batons from that line, which is then likely much closer to the blocks that they have to knock down. It might be a little bit hard to visualize, so if, if you need to look it up, um, it's spelled K-U-B-B. It's really fun. As somebody who has kind of uh, gotten sick of cornhole, which is the common you know game played at picnics and outdoor parties and stuff like that, this was a really fun alternative to play. Um, it allows more people to play since you ha- you have six wooden batons that you're throwing at the blocks. And it was, it was a lot of fun. I really liked it.
1: That brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of our work at slashhome.com. You can find this podcast, Slash Home Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at And please write and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. Jacob, we're we're already over an hour and a half. I'm not sure we have time for the book today.
3: Well, I think you should cut something else because I have in front of me Louis A. Safey and his gargantuan book of insult, defense, and infrontery. I've opened it up to the cream puffs section. What is Creole what is boy. a
1: cream like? Is it talking about the food, or is it like is that a derogatory uh, word for?
3: I yeah. was yeah, I was initially worried that I would opened up to um, <laughs> the gate bashing section, but it turns out that a uh, cream puff in the parlance of Louis A. Safian is a weak willed person, which we all are, as we all know. So I need to go through this book now. Uh, uh, Peter, you're the kind of guy who falls for everything and stands for nothing.
1: I mean, that's true.
3: Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Brad, uh, his motto is, it isn't who you know, but who you yes. Yeah, that's on (laughs) my family crest. Uh, Chris, uh, he's a man of firm convictions. It manifests itself as soon as he knows what anyone else thinks on a given subject. I couldn't even follow that, but all right. (laughs) I I, I, I think Uh, he's
1: saying that you're following other people.
3: Yeah. Uh, HT, she's the type of person who can make coffee nervous. (laughs) and that ben pearson you can break him easier than a biscuit
0: famously snappable that's the whole pearson plan
3: (laughs) i feel like when he was
1: writing this chapter he was drinking a coffee and eating biscuits
4: he seemed very hungry (laughs)